I'm Jim Goldgeier, a Robert Bosch Senior Visiting Fellow at Brookings and Professor of International Relations at American University, where I co-direct the Bridging the Gap Initiative, which is funded by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and the Frankel Family Foundation, and is geared toward generating scholarship that informs public and policy audiences. Oh, and I am Joshua Shippenson. I'm an assistant professor of international relations with the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University and a non-resident fellow with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington, D.C. Josh and I just co-edited a special issue of the journal International Politics on the legacies of NATO enlargement. Uh, the special issue was Josh's brainchild. Josh, what do you think we achieved by bringing this group of scholars together? You know, it, it, it's an exciting special issue, Jim. It, weirdly enough, for a topic that has absorbed as much American foreign policy attention and attention on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean uh, over the last 30 years, there was no systematic study of the consequences, good, bad, and indifferent, of NATO enlargement, let alone looking at it across all the different actors involved, the United States, NATO as an alliance, the different European members of NATO, Canada, also a member of NATO, and of course on Russia. So I think what this project has done is really bring together some historians, some IR theorists, some policy-oriented people to do a deep dive into what the different ways that NATO enlargement affected these very different actors over the last 30 years. It's kind of a one-stop shop to assess the legacies, which was the intent. Yeah, I'm really excited about it, and I um, hopefully it'll be get a lot of use in classrooms, and and also will jumpstart a, a better debate about NATO enlargement. A lot of the debate has basically been one-sided, one way or the other. Either it was terrible and caused all sorts of problems in U.S.-Russia relations, or it was so great because it helped uh, the Central and East Europeans uh, consolidate democracy and and join the West. But there really hasn't been a a good exploration of the cost and benefits um, of the policy and uh, the alternative policies that were chosen. One of the most interesting things I found just following your work is that you've done so much digging on the George H.W. administration period, uh, going through the archives. And whereas a lot of us have written about enlargement as something that came about starting in the Clinton administration, you've really got a lot of evidence now showing that the, the discussions were quite robust uh, in the Bush administration and that if HW had won re-election, we probably would have also gotten enlargement, which I, I think is uh, something that a lot of people haven't thought about. What do you what do you what have you come up with? In no, this, no. Uh, document? Thank you. You know, so I, I have a piece in the Journal of Strategic Studies that is, as you said, draws on some of the recent archival releases from the H.W. Bush archives, showing that the U.S. foreign policy team in that administration really began considering looking at the possibilities of NATO enlargement in late 1990 and, and into early 1991. And by the second half of 1991, and certainly by the first half of 1992, really people had come around to the idea that NATO enlargement was going to happen. In fact, uh, at, at a NATO meeting in the spring of 1992, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, Lawrence Eagleburger, actually put NATO enlargement on the agenda. Of course, American policymakers at the time didn't want to announce this. It was a campaign year after all. It's obviously a hugely contentious issue. So they soft peddled it. 
but there was real thinking behind the, the timing, the terms, the conditions under which NATO enlargement would occur. And I think, as you said, this really changes our understanding of what drove American foreign policy in this period of American unipolarity, really showing that there were forces or at least considerations operating in the foreign policy space that would have driven almost any administration that came to office in the early to mid 1990s to draw NATO eastward towards the Russian border, good, bad, and indifferent. You know, I mean, so this is 30 years now. And uh, in that time, uh, NATO has gone from 16 members to now 30 with uh, North Macedonia joining. And uh, and enlargement has taken up a lot of the conversation in NATO for those for those 30 years, but it's pretty much done, right? I mean, uh, you know, certainly Ukraine and Georgia uh, are still out there, but uh, very hard to see how any movement toward their membership would happen uh, anytime soon, given the controversy surrounding it. That's right. Uh, so, so now what? what so what is NATO going to talk about now? I guess uh, I guess they're starting to talk about China. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think you know, you, you know if the idea of NATO after the Cold War was to build a Europe whole, free, and at peace, and also by the way, really serve as a, a vehicle for American uh, power projection, then that 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 ship has sailed. That mission is accomplished, right? So NATO, uh, for the first time in three decades, really, really doesn't have. Uh, a focus. And so we see these conversations over technology standards, over economic linkages, and increasingly over China. I'm somewhat skeptical that that's going to take off. Of course, if Russia comes roaring back, maybe that'll change. But I think NATO is in for a series of nasty headwinds as its members just kind of cast about for a new mission. Yeah. And I think just to close, I mean, the pandemic is going to be out there for everybody, including NATO. So we'll that's see right. uh, whether the alliance can deal with that. Great to talk.